You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, so good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your device or you can even grab one of those pew Bibles there on the ground next to you and you can turn to page 942. 942. Well, today we begin a new series on the life and ministry of Jesus, but a little bit of a different aspect and element of his life and ministry that's captured in the Gospels. We recently finished a series on some of the hard sayings of Jesus, some of the difficult kind of head-scratching and challenging words from Jesus on what it means to be his disciple. And now we're looking at another kind of head-scratching, challenging, and comforting set of Jesus's ministry, his miracles. And today we look at the first miracle recorded in his ministry, and it's recorded here in the Gospel of John. And it is when the Lord Jesus turns a lot of water into a lot of wine. And so as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And we begin in John chapter 2. Beginning in John chapter 2, the Holy Spirit tells us, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now as we gather in these moments to hear your word. And would your glory, Jesus, be revealed to us? Would we see and would we taste, taste your glory? and see that you are good. And it's in your mighty name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there are really, I think, uh, two kinds of magic tricks. There are safe ones and then really scary ones. Um, As a kid, I loved magic. I I loved magic tricks. I love having my nose stolen. Um, Oliver stole mine yesterday and he ate it. Um, I love having my thumb, my thumb, you know, snapped in half kind of thing, coins disappearing and showing up because you need a bath behind your ear, all that kind of stuff. 
And I still love him. I still love to try to trick my kids. And my grandfather, my, my Mexican grandfather, we call him Muito, he had this great trick where, so sorry, some of the kids who were here, this is being ruined for you. Um, but, it, you know, if your kids aren't here, you've got a free magic trick here. And where he would hold this brown paper bag and he would have this invisible ball. And he would say, do you want, you want this ball? I'd say, yeah, yeah. He's like, okay, I'll hand it to you in the back. And he would throw it up in the air. And as he was holding this brown paper sack, it would fall in. And I remember... I don't know how old I was, but I just remember going, how? And I would go and look in and I'd try to grab it. He's like, oh, I already have it. You missed it. And, and he would hold the bag and just snap lightly. And it looked like it was falling into the bag. I loved it. But then you've got David Blaine coughing up frogs on the other side. <laughs> and I think that's where, it, use the magic ball, invisible ball. Don't do the coughing up goldfish at Thanksgiving th- this year. I thought about that because with the miracles of Jesus Christ, you must believe and understand that these are not magic tricks. Jesus isn't pulling rabbits out of his hat, doing sleight of hand gotchas. These are real events with real people, real places, and a real bending of the natural order as it seems to us. I mean, Jesus walks on water. And this is, when we read this one in a few weeks, when he walks on water, it is not just a calm, pristine, it is a raging storm. And he treats it like concrete. He shows his command of meteorological matters. He, he bosses broken muscle tissue and he tells flatlined hearts to fire back up again. The miracles happen and they're amazing because in a way they are unexpected. I mean, sometimes you hear people talk about the miracles of Christ as though they are totally unexplainable. We, we can't explain them, really wrap our minds around them. But I think that's not true. We can't explain how the miracles of Jesus happen because miracles happen when God comes to town. Jesus is just being God. Because Jesus isn't some mere teacher, he's not just some prophet, he's not even just some kind of wonder worker, some spiritual guru, but he is the eternal son of God who became a man. So of course the miracles happen when he shows up. I would expect nothing less than the almighty God himself to show up in a broken community and then to see everything begin to get fixed. Like when God tells a paralyzed man to stand up. It's the divine power of the almighty God at work. When the son of God walks into another town and it says, and all the sick were healed. The ER was emptied. The blind can see. It's because God came to town. And here's one thing we cannot miss about the miracles of Jesus as we go through this series over the next few weeks. We have to keep in mind every time we read them and every time you really see them here happening in the gospels, even as you read on your own. Here's one thing that we cannot miss. Jesus is showing us two things. He's showing us what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom of God is like, and that the kingdom of God is here. He's showing us this is what the kingdom looks like and I have brought it with me right now. And Luke 4, when Jesus begins his ministry there, he goes into the synagogue as he usually would and he's invited to read from the scroll. And so Jesus grabs a scroll, he scrolls through the scroll and finds the prophet Isaiah and listen to what he reads in the prophet Isaiah. Jesus says, as he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He, he finishes reading the scroll. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. So you can picture that Jesus reads this passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The recovery of sight of the blind. He sits down, everyone's staring at him. And Jesus says, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. He tells everyone in the synagogue, what you just heard me read from Isaiah The spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm proclaiming good news to the poor. I'm releasing captives. I'm giving sight to the blind. This is happening. I am here. This is being fulfilled. So Jesus is saying all the preaching of the good news, all of me fixing broken eyes, all of me freeing the demon eyes, it is God's kingdom touching down on earth. Every miracle isn't just like, well, that was cool. It is a time portal into the eternal kingdom. What it will be like of restoration, of redemption, and of freedom. So these are not party tricks. The miracles happen because the tide of the kingdom of God is coming to shore. And water to wine is the first one. Look at verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. So here we have to understand about the gospels and really as you read about Israel here in the New Testament, everything is happening in these gospels and the nation of Israel, but it's not a big nation here in the Roman empire at this time. This is about a little strip of land about the size of New Jersey. So a lot is, and a lot of Jesus's ministry happens in really almost one area near the Sea of Galilee. So when it says, you know, he was in Nazareth and he was in this town and then he went to Cana and went to Capernaum, you should read these not as like going from Houston to Dallas. This is like going from Tomball to Spring, Tomball to Cyprus, Tomball to Willowbrook. These are very short journeys where Jesus is doing these amazing things, preaching, healing, And now he's at this country town, Cana, at a wedding. Verse two, Jesus and his disciples, his mother's there, and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So Mary, Jesus, his disciples are all at this wedding. And I think it's just incredible to sit back and think for a moment that Jesus went to a wedding. Just just think about that for a moment. The almighty, ancient of days, king of the universe, went to a wedding. And much like our weddings today, but even more so, these were parties. They could last multiple days. They were big events, lots of people, lots of food, lots to drink. They were celebrations. And Jesus, Jesus is not the kind of person that, oh, I'm so spiritual. I'm so holy. I, I need to study the scrolls and not go to a wedding. He didn't duck out. He didn't make up an excuse. Oh, I need to, really be, I need to spend this evening praying with my father. He actually went to a wedding the king of the universe, talking to people, maybe smashing plates, enjoying the celebration. I I bring this up because I think some of us, we just think Jesus is a boring person. I refuse to think Jesus is a boring person because you don't really invite boring people to weddings unless they're family. (laughs) He would celebrate, he would have fun. And godliness, these are not at odds with each other. Jesus shows us this. But listen, something happens at this wedding. And this is a big problem. This this problem is this empty wine. It is an embarrassing failure. Look at verse three. 
So when the wine ran out, Jesus's mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, depending on your church background, you read this and think, praise the Lord, the wine ran out. It's a miracle. But Mary goes, praise the Lord, the wine ran out. And my son is here who happens to be the Lord. For the wine jugs to be empty, guys, this is a colossal failure in a Jewish first century wedding. Wine is a staple at a celebration. And it still is in most parts of the world. And for most people. I mean, the Bible Belt has its hangups, but the Bible lands do not. It would be embarrassing to run out of wine at a wedding in the first century. The groom and his family were to provide the wine. It wouldn't be a good look for this man. Starting this, you know, every man in the room knows, I, I want to provide, I want to be a good leader and just take care of my family. It's first thing, oh boy, I'm running out of wine already. This would be like running out of food at a wedding today. Imagine being at a wedding. You know, we all know what happens. You go, especially, imagine an outdoor wedding in Texas, a July wedding. Yeah, you're there, you're outside, and then you go inside for the reception, and then they're taking pictures what feels like a day. It feels like it's been 18 hours they're taking pictures, and then they've got some cheese cubes and some mints and some, you know, mixed planters set out for us. And then they found out, oh, we're actually, we ran out of all the chicken. We ran out of the steak. This is all we have. Our response would be, are you kidding? I'm happy for you and all, but look, I got Antietam over here. She's going to pass out. We need some food. I have low blood sugar. I mean, my kids, every time we get to a wedding, as soon as we get there, my daughter, when are we having cake? Look, we just got here. It's going to be a long time, a long time. Don't ask me every couple minutes because I want cake too. It's just going to be a bit. <laughs> the celebration would be embarrassing to run out of food, to run out of wine. The whole party is going to fall apart and crumble. Sometimes you could even be sued by family members because you think about it, people are taking off of work at these multi-day weddings. And Mary knows this is a big problem. Mary, maybe she knows this family, but probably like any good mother who sees a problem, she's not going to sit around and wait like, well, I don't know, what should we do? I mean, guys kind of sit around, like, I don't know, hey, you think, should we go to the store? I mean, I don't know. The mom, boom, what do I need to do? Mary just jumps right in and grabs her son. Jesus, they don't have any wine, verse three. Now, Jesus' response is bizarre at first blush. Look at what he says in verse four. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? What does that have to do with you and me? Why are you telling me this? Now, this sounds harsh in English. There's a couple of problems happening here. One is English. It's first century Greek to 21st century English. When Jesus is saying, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? It is not the way you and I would speak. <laughs> I, know, I know you're God and all, but boy, you have, you know, that, that is not what's happening here. This is a lot closer to ma'am to ma'am, but, but not even a family, like, yes, ma'am. This is more of a disconnected ma'am and more of a, excuse me, ma'am, you're in my way. So why is Jesus talking to his mother this way? There's a lot that you could speculate kind of what's happening in the background here. Maybe is she trying to leverage Jesus to do something? Maybe. Why else would she invite her carpenter trained son into this equation? 
And you see, really, I mean, this is part of Jesus' response. What, is this, what does this wine shortage have to do with you and me? Maybe Jesus is gospel gauging his mother's faith for her. Mother, what do you really want from me most? Like Jesus often does. People ask Jesus questions and he spins it around on them, going, do you see what you really need most? But look at what Jesus, how he responds next. So what does it have to do with us? And then he says at the end of verse four, my hour has not yet come. This, this phrase, the hour, all throughout the gospel of John, this is always trending forward to the hour of his death and the hour of his resurrection, his, his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. So right here, Jesus is showing us that from the very beginning of his ministry, he is already dialed in to what is going to happen on Good Friday in Easter morning. He's already looking forward already dialed into the cross. He's already counting down when the hour arrives. Maybe the Lord has the Lord's Supper on his mind or wine is involved. And he's saying, it's not time for that yet. Maybe he's thinking about when he's gonna say on the hillsides that you must drink my blood and chew on my skin. Believe in me to be saved. And maybe Jesus is saying, no, it's, it's not time for that yet. I think Jesus is reminding Mary, the disciples, and us, that he won't be leveraged by family and friends, by anyone to do their bidding. He came to do the Father's will. Chronically throughout the gospel, he says, I came to do my Father's will. The tone for the whole book is set right here. The tone for all the miracles, the tone for all the teachings, the tone for all the healings, the tone for Jesus's life and ministry on earth is I'm here to do my Father's will. So for us, friends, we can pray, we can make requests, we can plead, but the miracle belongs to the Lord. The miracle belongs to the Lord. And I think Mary realizes this. I think she realizes, okay, I may have overstepped. It's up to you, Lord. It's up to you, son. It's up to you, Jesus. Because look at how she responds, verse five. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't seem offended or put off by it. And she kind of, relinquishes. She kind of rescues herself and says, do whatever he tells you. His mother told the servants. She just says to Jesus and the waiters, okay, guys, you got it. Do whatever Jesus says. I love this line. Do whatever he tells you. This line from Mary is relevant to these waiters here at this wedding, and it is vital to your everyday life. This applies to all of life. Do whatever he tells you. This can really be said of no one else, no pastor, no parent, no professor, no government official. No one else has complete authority and trustworthiness to not lead you astray. Jesus is the only one in the universe where you can 100% trust and obey everything he says. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Whatever he tells you in this book, from Genesis to Revelation, all his power, all his authority, all of his words, do it. We can't go wrong. We won't be hurt. We won't be led down the wrong path. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever Jesus says about your marriage would say about your marriage right now, do it. Whatever Jesus says about that sin that you're hiding that needs to be confessed, repented of, whatever he says, do it. And Jesus says, Believe in me. Believe in me for everlasting life. So whatever he says, do it. 
You know, sometimes I listen to Siri like she actually knows what she's talking about. And then I, I just gave her the English accent. So like I trust her even more. And even though I know, like, I think this is the wrong turn, but she's British. She's got to be right. Like, she's got to be smarter than me. And I shouldn't listen to her. Friends, tuck this line from Mary into your heart. Do whatever he tells you. A breakthrough in your life could be around the corner of trusting Jesus. A real breakthrough in your life could be around the corner in trusting Jesus. A breakthrough in your thinking in your affections, in your love for him. Whatever he says, do it. These waiters, they did that. Because look at the provision. The problem, this em these empty jars of wine, this embarrassing failure, but then Jesus provides and he fills with fine wine. Look at verse six. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So you take the average of these, we got about 150 gallons of water here. And Jesus tells them, fill it to the brim. Fill, verse seven, fill the jars with water. Jesus told them, so they filled each to the brim. So these Jewish purification jars, they're not big enough for you to put your body in to, to cleanse your whole self, but they would be used for hands, for utensils. I mean, you can imagine six gallons of milk all arranged. You wouldn't want to sit in that. This is for your hands. This is for utensils. So you can be ceremonially clean for this wedding. And just imagine being these waiters too. Imagine you're working the catering crew. And then all of a sudden this mom comes in, starts you, okay, I, I know we're out of wine. It's not my fault. She says, hey, listen to my son. Okay. Hey, fill those up with water. I don't see how that's fixing our problem. I don't even know you, man. Um, but your mom said to listen. I don't want another mom getting on to me. I'm gonna listen to you. And look at what happens, verse eight. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Jesus says, take it to the head caterer. Take it to your boss. Let him have a sip. Verse nine. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the groom and see, see the groom's in charge. Why is he called the groom? The groom's in charge of the wine. Remember that. And he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Everyone in the universe puts out the good stuff first. But you, I mean, after, then after they, people are drunk, the inferior, then they put out the two buck chuck. But you, after people can't taste the oats of black currants and oak anymore, then the junky stuff. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Water to wine. And not kind of wine, not like food coloring at the bottom of those jars and Jesus tricked them. Water to wine, the best wine. And notice what we just read. There was no abracadabra. No spell was cast. No waniamos and no, no, no spells. No waving of his hands, no spitting in the water, no putting his finger in the water and going, just watch this guys. Nothing like that. Just fill it up, let your boss have a drink, and then vintage vino. 
I mean, think about the time-intensive process just to make wine. You have a seed, and then you have grapes, and then you have a harvest, then you have picking, then you have cleaning, then you have stomping like an I Love Lucy, then more cleaning, and then the fermenting and the aging. I mean, this is years. It's years to make fine wine, really good, top-shelf, excellent wine. The kind of stuff that would make a sommelier, a wine expert, ooh and awe, takes time but not for Jesus. Jesus fast forwards the entire process because with God, nothing is impossible. In fact, Jesus doesn't even have all the right ingredients. There's no grapes. He doesn't say, let's just toss a couple of grapes in there too. Muddle that all together. Nothing. He doesn't even have the right ingredients that we think are needed to make wine, but that doesn't matter because it's Jesus. God made the entire universe from nothing. With this one, this is like easy. He's got a head start. We already got water. When Jesus did this, beloved, he, he did more than keep the party going, which he did. He gave them fine wine to enjoy. But Jesus did so much more in providing this fine wine. John tells us he revealed his glory. Look at verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. His first sign, verse 11 says, well, the first sign of what? Of who he is and what he came to do that he really is God and that the kingdom of God is here and he manifested it. He revealed it to everyone there. I am the king of kings. Earlier in John chapter one, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, here's, here's why this is all kind of connects. Earlier in the Gospel of John, John says in John 1.14, just one chapter earlier, he says, we observed his glory. Speaking of Jesus, what kind of glory? The glory as the only, the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what we saw from Jesus as we walked with him, as we talked with him, as we saw him perform miracles, as we saw him teach, as we saw him die and rise again. We saw his glory. So when John says here from the water to wine that Jesus revealed his glory, he's saying Jesus showed us that he is the one and only son from the father and that he is full of grace and truth. He is the true God, the true son of God. And listen, friends, it's significant that Jesus' first miracle happens at a wedding It ties into how the gospel of John opens. The gospel of John, one chapter earlier, opens with these words, in the beginning. Meant to remind us how the entire Bible opens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel of John opens with, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus. And if you remember how the Bible opens, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to detail how everything was created. And then in the next chapter, there is a wedding So here, the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and then there is a wedding. And at this wedding, there's a failure. Just like how in chapter two, right after that wedding, there's a failure. And now at this wedding, in John chapter two, Jesus is here. And this wedding, this celebration will not fail because the new wine the sweet wine of the kingdom is starting to flow. The king is here. 
And then, beloved, the Bible ends with a wedding celebration of us in eternity with King Jesus enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the Bible opens with a wedding. Here as Jesus' ministry, it opens with a wedding and how the Bible ends with a wedding celebration. And Isaiah prophesies and talks about it this way. And he says, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine and prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. Almost sounds like an H-E-B commercial. (laughs) Prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine, vintage cabin, vintage pinot, choice meat, center cut filet, prime. This is the kind of celebration that the crucified and risen Christ gives to his people. God's choice wine is here. So Jesus isn't just trying to help out a wedding party not fail. He's trying to show us the king is here. The king is here. And remember when I said, remember that the groom failed? Jesus provides for this groom that failed. He didn't meet expectations. He fell short. Jesus provides, friends, for failures and losers, those who totally mismanage their lives. When people say Christianity is for losers, I hope we can all say amen. Jesus provides where we fall short. He gives us what we need. He fills us with what is better than we could ever come up with. When we don't have the righteousness we need to be accepted by God, Jesus says, I have your wine. I have your righteousness. When we are guilty and there is no way that we could be accepted by the Father because of our sins, Jesus says, I have what you need. And I will fill you to the brim of what you need. My blood, my wine, take and drink. That's why, remember the vessels? This is not just all happenstance. Those vessels that they filled, these Jewish purification jars, they were used so you could be ritually clean. You could be declared clean, even though you weren't really. They were just water. They really never worked. But Jesus changed them. It's like he's saying by taking those water jugs and filling them now with new wine, the best wine, he's saying those Jewish purification rites, they did not work. But this wine, my blood, this will do the trick. Jesus undoes the old way of things and says, my wine is here. My blood is here. Taste and see that I am good. You don't need these jars anymore. You need what I've got. The way of Judaism, the ritual cleanings, and then our ways of just trying to be good people and trying to do the right thing so so God will accept us. And that's how we'll get to God. It'll just be a good person. In this miracle, Jesus is showing us that will not work. You need a complete transformation. You need, you need to be transformed just as much as this water needed to be made wine. And we need to be transformed as much just as our ritual cleansing and our trying to be good people needs to be changed and covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. We need his miracle. His blood poured out for us at the cross. Do you have Jesus's wine? Do you have his blood? 
Do you trust him and his blood for you, paying for your sins at the cross? Listen, Jesus is alive in heaven, inviting you to trust his wonder-working, sinner-saving wine, his blood for your entire life, that he died in your place, that he rose from the dead. That's why Mary says, and why it's so true for right now in this moment, do whatever he says. And Jesus is telling us, come to me. All who are tired and worn out, and I will give you rest. All you have to do is believe. Trust him. Drink it by faith. He works the miracle. We drink the drink. That's it. We are the benefactors of his blessings. I mean, these waiters, they just trusted Jesus. They just did what he said and the transformation came. In the same way, the transformation in your life, your new life, that you need, the forgiveness you need, the hope you crave, the freedom from sin that you desire, the joy that you seek, the unity you long for in your life, the salvation, it is there with Jesus. All you must do is trust in him. Go to him. Believe in him. Don't just believe that he can work miracles like water to wine. Believe that he can change your life from unrighteousness to righteousness, from sin to saved. That's what the disciples believed. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory. And look, and the disciples believed in him. They believed in him. Not they believed him, that, oh man, he can turn water to wine. They believed in him. We don't talk like this about anyone else in human history. You, no one in this room believes in George Washington. You could believe George Washington. I believe George Washington is the first president. I believe that fact about George Washington. But I don't believe in George Washington. But with Jesus, we believe in him. And really the phrase, if you were to translate it even stronger, more literal, it's kind of clunky in English, but it, believes, it means we believed into him. This is why becoming a Christian, believing in Jesus is not inviting Jesus into your life. It's being invited into his life, being invited into him. Do you believe into him? Are you trusting Jesus for your salvation? Do you view him as the one who is full of grace and truth, the one and only son from the father? He welcomes you today. This miracle is here for you to be invited into his wedding feast to come because he is the groom that will not fail. Even though this groom failed, Jesus is now stepping in and going, I am the groom that will not fail. I will give you everything you need and the wine of my kingdom, my blood will not fail you and will never run out. So come to me and celebrate. This is why Christians, beloved, why, what I love about this wedding feast is Jesus doesn't change it from water to Gatorade. Man, you guys need some electrolytes. It's no more wine. No, in fact, he gives even the better wine. Beloved, Jesus wants us to rejoice in him, to rejoice in his blood, to celebrate what he has done for us, that no one and nothing can top Jesus. That's why the head waiter says, why are you giving the best stuff now? This is the way the Bible is saying, the best stuff is here, and it's Christ himself. 
our best life now is in Christ. To be in Christ. To be covered by the wine, by the blood of Christ. This is why nothing can top him. Jesus is the drink you need. The final one, the full one, and that nothing can top him. Water to wine. Sinner to saved. Unrighteousness to righteousness. Death to life the ways of the world to the way of the kingdom. The king is here and the kingdom shores are now invading this earth. Beloved, these aren't magic tricks. This is what happens when the Messiah comes to town. Believe in him and enjoy his glory. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.